guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we are told to imitate those who are above us in the faith, who have paved the way before us, and to imitate them insofar as they imitate Christ, which is one of the main reasons, uh, one of the main benefits of doing biographical studies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again we come before thee. Lord, I ask for thy blessing upon this biographical lecture. Pray, Lord, that it would teach us to love thee and serve thee more. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of our Sunday school is Unus Amor Extinguit Alium, The Life and Labors of William Gurnall. I'll give you that again later, so don't worry about it. Introduction. I was originally going to speak about the Puritan Richard Baxter this afternoon. However, while meditating on Baxter's life and works, Baxter's well-known quote kept ringing in my ears. He said, I preach as a dying man to dying men, and as though I were never to preach again. And so, all this, although this Sunday school lecture is not a sermon, is not preaching, it still caused me to rethink what I would talk about this afternoon. If I were to never have the opportunity of speaking upon the Puritans again, what would I say? If this was the only time I would ever address my congregation on this subject, is Baxter truly the man I would want to talk about? As much as I have grown to love and appreciate Baxter over the years, especially in the past three weeks as I've read three different biographies on his life and his writings and read many pages of his writings of the past three weeks, I do not think he is the Puritan I would want to speak on if I were to never have another opportunity. No, in fact, I know exactly who it would be. It would be a man who has served as a spiritual father of sorts to my own soul on almost a daily basis for the past eight and a half years. A man who has pastored my soul and led me in the paths of righteousness for my own soul's sake. A man who has taught me to savor the Lord Jesus Christ, more than probably any other non-living man. A man who has taught me how to wear God's armor and fight in the ranks of Christ's army unlike anyone else. That man is William Gurnall. It is to this little-known Puritan that we will turn our attention this afternoon. William Gurnall is the author of the classic book, The Christian in Complete Armor which, following the typical Puritan fashion, is an exposition on 11 verses from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, namely verses uh, 10 through 20 of chapter 6. It spans 1,200 plus pages of small font double print. Double column print, small print. 1,200 plus pages just on Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. It is possible that this is the greatest work on defensive Christian living ever written, and it serves as an exhaustive manual on spiritual warfare. Gurnall first gave the substance of this work as sermons to his congregation during the regular course of his Lord's Day duties. 
This book, The Christian Complete Armor, has served many generations of Christians as a guide for their warfare on this earth and an escort during their heavenly pilgrimage. Outside of a couple of sermons, this was Gurnall's only published work. And although it is a shame that he did not write more, one may spend their entire life reading Gurnall and never grow tired of it, nor master all of its contents. The great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who needs no introduction, said this of Gurnall's work. Quote, Gurnall's work is peerless and priceless. Every line is full of wisdom. Every sentence is suggestive. The whole book has been preached over scores of times and is, in our judgment, the best thought breeder in all of our library. It is beyond all others a preacher's book. I should think that more discourses have been suggested by it than by any other uninspired volume. I have often resorted to it when my own fire has been burning low, and I have seldom failed to find a glowing coal upon Gurnall's hearth. End quote. If the ever-suggestive, eloquent, thoughtful, and fluent Spurgeon found it as a source of comfort and inspiration when his own heart was empty, how much more us lesser mortals? John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, said this of the book. Quote, if I might read only one book besides the Bible, I would choose The Christian in Complete Armor. End quote. That's pretty good. In Bishop J.C. Ryle's day, it was held in high respect by all Christians, whether Calvinist or Arminian, churchman or dissenter, Baptist or paedo-Baptist. Of it, Ryle said, quote, you will, find, you will often find in a line and a half some great truth put so concisely and yet so fully that you really marvel how so much thought could be got into so few words, end quote. I myself have made this great book my daily friend, and Gurnall, my most trusted guide. Of all the amazing theological works available in our day through Banner of Truth reprints, Reformation Heritage book reprints, my constant answer to the question, what shall I read, Dane? What do you recommend? Has been and will remain the Christian in complete armor. Many of you can attest to this fact when you look at your bookshelves. I think that a modern Christian's library would be incomplete without Matthew Henry's commentary and prayer book, The Valley of Vision, and Gurnall's The Christian in Complete Armor. But no library, regardless of its vastness, would be sufficient without them. The current edition, I forgot to bring it with me, is put out by Banner of Truth and has been reprinted from the 1864 Glasgow edition. It was originally published in two volumes, that edition, and it's now bound as one by Banner of Truth. Mine's the old red. Uh, It's starting to get brown on the edges from using it, but... It's red. The one now, I think, is like a deep purple or magenta, and it's still in print. I encourage you to set aside $40 and acquire it as soon as you possibly can if you do not already possess it. Even if you do, buy one and give it to somebody. It was through Gurnall that I was introduced to the Puritans, and through the Puritans to Reformed Theology. And through Reformed Theology to true, experiential, biblical Christian living. I can remember the day that I picked up Gurnall as clearly as the day it happened. It was early 2011. I was feeling quite depressed, so I went to Barnes & Noble to walk around, look at books, look at Bibles. In the Christian living section, one book stuck out among the rest. 
nestled between many colorful, slim paperbacks on how to have a better personality, sat one oversized hardcover. It was the old Hendrickson hardcover edition that was glue-bound and fell apart quickly after using it. It had a coat of arms on it and knight's armor on the cover. I pulled it off the shelf, turned it over, and saw the aforementioned quotes by Spurgeon, Ryle, and Newton on the back cover. At this time, I was Calvinistic in my soteriological leanings through listening to John Piper, John MacArthur, Matt Chandler, but I had not yet come to understand Reformed theology holistically, and thus biblical theology. I remember flipping through it and being astonished at the not only lack of pictures, but also amount of text within it. I sat on the floor for 45 minutes or more, reading bits and pieces, flipping through it back and forth. Finally, I purchased it and went home feeling victorious and slightly confused. When I got home, I began reading it again. After skimming through the preface, the biographical introduction, and Gurnall's dedicatory letters, I felt kind of bogged down. I flipped open to the beginning of his exposition. Gurnall's first point that he makes was on Paul's words, Brethren, be strong. He drew this doctrine from those three words. Quote, The Christian of all men needs courage and resolution. Indeed, there is nothing he does as a Christian or can do, but is an act of valor. End quote. He explained that of all people, the Christian is the bravest on earth. For he wages a war far more intense than any soldier on earth. He went on to give proofs as to why it is that Christians need more bravery to live the Christian life than any soldier does in fighting earthly battles. That is when my eyes fell upon these words, words that would completely change my life forever. Gurnall writes, quote, First, or the first reason why this is true, the Christian is to proclaim an irreconcilable war against his bosom sins. Those sins which have lain nearest his heart must now be trampled under his feet. So, David, I have kept myself from my iniquity. Now, what courage and resolution does this require? You think Abraham was tried to purpose when called to take his son, his son Isaac, his only son whom he loved, and offer him up with his own hands and no other? Yet what was that to this? Soul, take thy lust, thy only lust, which is the child of thy dearest love, thy Isaac, the sin which has caused most joy and laughter, from which thou hast promised thyself the greatest return of pleasure or profit, as ever thou lookest to see my face with comfort. Lay hands on it and offer it up. Pour out the blood of it before me. Run the sacrificing knife of mortification to the very heart of it. And this freely, joyfully. For it is no pleasing sacrifice that is offered with a countenance cast down. And all this now, before thou hast one more embrace from it. Truly, this is a hard chapter. Flesh and blood cannot bear this saying. Our lust will not lie so patiently on the altar as Isaac. Or as a lamb that is brought to the slaughter which was dumb. But will roar and shriek. Yea, even shake and rend the heart with its hideous outcries. End quote. Upon reading these words, I realized I had stumbled upon uncharted territory. Something strange and other. Something that had a certain smell of the reformed preaching that I was used to, 
but was totally and completely other. I had never read anything like this. The truth of it was like a fiery dagger in my heart. The blatant realness of Christian living was thrust upon me, and I was left without any escape. Christianity is not merely a belief system, not merely a guide to living well. It is life itself. I was immediately reminded of the urgent and all-encompassing mandate of our Lord Jesus Christ. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Gurnall had placed Christianity with all of its inconvenient glory directly in my path. Since reading these words, I have never been the same and have always given Gurnall my utmost attention. True Christianity leaves us without escape. We must respond, either with humble and loving submission or with hopeless and hateful rebellion. There is no middle ground. For this lecture, I have made use of the only biographical information on Gurnall that exists, J.C. Ryle's account, as well as Gurnall's own words and his letters, prefaces, and other writings. Birth. With Bishop Ryle, we might say that the author of such words is a man whose life we ought to know. Who was William Gurnall? This is a question which, sadly, we can hardly answer. Interesting to do a biographical study on such a man. Very little is known about the man other than just bare facts. Most of what can be said about the man, as he was, must be drawn from inference from the world around him and his writings. Of this, we can be sure. William Gurnall was a Puritan divine in the 17th century. He was a minister in Lavenham, England for 35 years, and he wrote a well-known book of practical divinity titled The Christian in Complete Armor. This dearth of information is likely due to his remaining in the Church of England, while the rest of his Puritan brethren were ejected from their pulpits with the Act of Uniformity, in 1662, as Pastor Taylor has talked about. Over 2,000 of the greatest Puritan divines were expelled from their pulpits when they refused to conform to the Act of Uniformity, which was imposed upon them by the crown, upon all the churches. But Gurnall agreed to the terms, and he remained in his pulpit. Although he was thoroughly Puritan in both doctrine and practice, he did what many of his brethren would not do, He conformed to the changes in the Book of Common Prayer. It can be understood that such a course of action did not make him well-liked with either of the religious parties into which England at the time was divided. J.C. Ryle comments, quote, A neutral is never popular in a season of strife and controversy. Both sides suspect him. Each party is offended at him for not casting his weight into their scale. This, I suspect, was precisely Gurnall's position. He was a Puritan in doctrine, and yet he steadfastly adhered to the Church of England. He was a minister of the Church of England, and yet a thorough Puritan both in preaching and practice. In fact, he was just the man to be disliked and slighted by both sides. End quote. It is likely that we would know far more about Gurnall had he not submitted to the Act of Uniformity in 1662, but had suffered ejection with his Puritan brethren, of whom we know so much more. J.C. Ryle notes that Almost the only source of information we have 
of Gurnall is contained in a small biographical volume published in 1830 by McKeon, which was most successful, he says, in accumulating facts, but in arranging and exhibiting them to the reading public, he was much less than successful. Meaning, his book was good for putting a bunch of facts forth, but it was poorly written and useless as far as good reading goes. William Gurnall was born at Lynn in the country of Norfolk on the 17th of November, 1616, to Catherine and Gregory Gurnall. His father was a man of high callings, an alderman of his native town, and a mayor in Lynn. Gregory died when William was only 15 years old. His mother likely remarried a godly man whom William honored until their death. He was educated at the free grammar school there in Lynn, and we know nothing else of his childhood or family life other than Lynn, the city he grew up in, was sympathetic to Puritan thought and practice and saw the preaching of many eminent Puritan divines. So it's on good probability that the Gurnalls were a Puritan family and that William was raised with Puritan ideals. Education. The next thing we know about William is that he attended Emmanuel College, Cambridge, from 1631 to 1639. He was presented a scholarship through that free grammar school in December 1631, not long after his father's death, so he's 15 or 16 at this point when he gets the scholarship to Emmanuel College, Cambridge. This scholarship would take him through both his undergraduate and graduate work. He was awarded his bachelor's in 1635 and his master's in 1639. After he received his master's, his scholarship was no longer tenable, and he likely ceased to reside at Cambridge afterward. We know nothing of his tutors, his teachers, or even what he studied. The only light we can throw on Gurnall's university life consists of a few observations about the university itself and the general state of England at the time. Emmanuel College, Cambridge University, was known as the Puritan Nursery. Pastor Taylor's mentioned that. Many of the greatest Puritan divines either taught or were taught at this college. It was an eminently Puritan college. Just a small list of some notable names, many of whom are still known and being reprinted and read today, should serve to demonstrate the kind of theology that was being taught and learnt there. Bishop Hall, Jeremiah Burroughs, Thomas Shepard, Thomas Hooker, John Cotton, Anthony Burgess, John Preston, Matthew Poole, Ralph Venning, Thomas Watson, Stephen Charnock, and William Bridge, just to name a small selection. Even from our Sunday School series thus far, a handful of these names should ring a bell, like Anthony Burgess, Jeremiah Burroughs. Seven years at a college like Emmanuel could not fail to have an effect on Gurnall's beliefs, even if he had not held to Puritan leanings when he was going in. So even if he had not been Puritan in sympathy when he was going into the college, eight years there, seven years there, would definitely make someone probably lean that way. During his seven years at Cambridge, England saw some of its most important history unfold. It was the troubled period of time before, between the Reformation and the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell. It saw the suicidal misgovernment of King Charles I rapidly paving the way for civil war and the destruction of his own throne. During this time, the undisguised papist tendencies and bitter persecution of Archbishop Laud and his fellow workers was doing the same for the Church of England. From one end of the country to the other, there was discontent, murmuring, 
controversy, bitterness, and party spirit. On every side, there were harbingers of the coming violent conflict both in church and state. So even while Gurnall was at Cambridge, Emmanuel College herself saw the persecution of many Puritan students and preachers within her walls, some even having their ears cut off or hung in the courtyard. No doubt Gurnall was influenced by what he saw and heard while at university. But even more than the disputes and the persecutions, Gurnall was likely influenced by his teachers, tutors, and fellow students all the more. Gurnall was taught by and studied alongside of many of the leading Puritan divines. This in all likelihood helped mold his doctrine and practice. Pastorate. Gurnall left Emmanuel College in 1639, and we know literally nothing about the next five years of his life. He disappears. He does not appear again until he is made rector of Lavenham. Interesting enough, during these five years, the Westminster Assembly was convened and produced its priceless documents. The Lord Strafford was beheaded. Archbishop Laud, the closet papist who was trying to bring England back to the papacy through church reforms, was imprisoned. And the civil war between, the King, between King Charles I and his men and Parliament and their men, which would end with Charles' de- decapitation and the Church of England being vanquished, and the Puritans and Presbyterians under Cromwell coming to authority, that war broke out during this time. During this time, we know that Gurnall preached for some time in Sudbury. We don't know from when to when, but we do know he preached for a time there. And we also know that he was ordained to the ministry likely by Presbyterians, because that was the only option right then, and was instituted as rector of Lavenham in December 1644, when he was 28 years old. We know that Gurnall was in ill health most of his life. It's pretty common for all these men. From at least his pastorate in Lavenham until his death, we know he was in ill health. This is demonstrated for us in one extraordinary example. Gurnall was invited to preach before Parliament, which, if you know anything about that time, John Goodwin, John Owen, all of the most eminent of divines were the ones who were invited to preach. You had to be the most gifted, one of the most gifted preachers to be invited to preach before Parliament at that time. And he was invited to come for November 1649, but he declines the invitation in December 1648, a year before, thinking that he would probably be dead before uh, then. Thanks for the invite. I'll probably be dead, so I'm not going to sign up. But his living was good in Lavenham. He was paid 80 pounds a year and given a home with 140 acres of land attached to the rectory, which he also was able to make some income from that. The parish church in Lavenham was beautiful and could adequately accommodate its 1,800 citizens. The people of Lavenham were middle class, largely devout, and were receptive to his ministry. In 1645, William Gurnall married Sarah Mott, daughter of the famed nonconformist divine Reverend Thomas Mott, who Thomas Mott was going to be ejected in 1622 while Gurnall stayed in his pulpit. It's kind of interesting dynamic there. Together, he and Sarah had ten children, eight of whom were living at his death. And just a little tiny side note, because I don't have much time for this, but the the average Puritan family had eight to ten children. And the average amount of those children that would live to adulthood, meaning past 16 or 17, was two to three. These people were intimately acquainted with suffering and grief 
And yet we see how vibrantly they spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ. So he had eight children who were still alive when he died. In his will, he left everything in the hands of his dear wife, Sarah, with enough to care for them and a couple of their young children after his death. He left his library to his son, John, who followed his father's footsteps in the ministry. As a husband and father, there's not much to go on, but it seems that he was highly esteemed and much loved. William Gurnall was well-educated. This is evidenced not only by his theological works, but also by the fact that there do survive today eight letters written in classical, polished Latin to a godly aristocrat that helped him obtain his office as rector of Lavenham. Quotes and allusions to the church fathers, the reformers, the Greek and Roman classics, history, and the science of the day are peppered throughout the Christian complete armor. Gurnall often begins a section by exegeting the text from the original Greek or Hebrew with ease and simplicity. But his education is not what made him an effective preacher. What made his preaching so effective, and its ghost, which lives on in his published works, still so effective, was his love for his congregation and his ability to explain deep theological truth in plain and memorable style. Gurnall loved his people at Lavenham. The very reason he even published this work that we have, The Christian Complete Armor, was so that they could be continually fed by the meat of the gospel even when he was not with them. Due to his frequent illness, he could not visit with them as often as he would have liked. So he published his book that they might learn from him when he could not be with them. He dedicated his book to his congregation with the following words, quote, I never could be so serviceable to you as many ministers are to their people, having been with you in much weakness, and still it is the good pleasure of God. I should be staked down to a short tether of strength and other abilities. I have reason, therefore, that I may, though not recompense the want, the meaning, though this isn't going to make up for my inability to visit with you guys frequently, yet I'm going to do this work to express my deep sense thereof of understanding that this is a want that you have, to crowd the more love into the little that I can do for you. And truly my heart is enlarged to you, and to God for you. If anything makes me loath to be gone to another world, which my drooping house above me, above many bids me prepare for, it is not the least to think I shall leave no more of you walking in the way to eternal life, and you who are on your way thither, in no closer gospel order for your mutual help and comfort in your journey. Yea, while I am among you, little do you think how much of your poor minister's life lies at your mercy. End quote. His great desire in making his book available to them was that they would be led in a closer walk with God through Jesus Christ. And the best way he knew how to do this in his lack of ability to visit with them was to put before them the substance of the sermons he had delivered unto them in book form. He wished to care for them as a mother does her suckling babe, he says. He writes this also in the dedication, quote, What I present to you in this treatise is a dish from your own table. That's such an amazing way of speaking. Is a dish from your own table, and so I hope will go down all the better. You cannot despise it, though the fare be mean, except you blame yourselves who chose the cook. Physicians say the mother's milk, though not so weighty as another's, if no noxious humor or disease be tasted in it, because it is natural, is more proper for the child than a stranger's. 
and a people lying conscientiously at the breast of their own minister, if the milk he gives be wholesome, may expect the blessing of God for their nourishment, though it has not so much lusciousness to please the curious taster as some others. Meaning, I know there's all these better writings out there, these better preachers, better authors, who are saying better things, more equipped, but in my lack of ability to minister to you as I think I ought, I will give you simply what I've already put before you in book form that you might, again, meditate on it. And though it's not going to be as good as other people because you already have feasted on it and you know it's coming from a heart of love, a loving minister, I hope that it will go down all the better. Gurnall goes on to acknowledge that the sermons he preached, and this shows his high view of preaching, will not have the same effect when read, though they are the same in substance as when they were first delivered in the pulpit. Quote, well, whatever these sermons were, some of those few spirits which you found in hearing will be missing in the reading of them. It is as easy to paint fire with heat as with pen and ink to commit that to paper which occurs in preaching. Very true. There is as much difference between a sermon in the pulpit and printed in a book as between milk in the warm breast and in a sucking bottle. Yet what it loseth in lively taste is recompensed by the convenience of it. The book may be at hand when the preacher cannot. And truly, that is the chief end of printing, that as the bottle and spoon is used when the mother is sick or out of the way, so the book, to quiet the Christian and stay his stomach in the absence of the ordinance of preaching. End quote. From the delivery of the sermon in the pulpit to the printing of the sermon in a book, Gurnall's labor was a labor of love intended to help his people know, love, and serve God. Ryle comments on Gurnall's plain and memorable manner of preaching when he says, quote, Another striking peculiarity of Gurnall's book is its prof- profusion of il- illustrations and comparisons. You can hardly open a page of the work without meeting with some vivid image or picture of divine things, which lights up the whole subject un- under consideration like a sunbeam. Happy would it be for the church if this gift of illustration was more common and more cultivated by preachers. The man whose sermons are best remembered is the man who, like his divine master, uses similitudes. He is an eloquent man, says an oriental proverb, who turns his hearer's ears into eyes and makes them see what he speaks of. End quote. I'm going to give you a few samples of Gurnall's writing to kind of demonstrate this. I just kind of literally flipped around at random. Quote, Your hearts shall live that seek God. And their, whole, and their souls must needs die that seek not God here in the means of grace. The husbandman may as well expect a crop where he never plowed or sowed, and the tradesman to grow rich who never opens his shop doors to let customers in, as he to thrive in grace or comfort that converseth not with the, the duties of religion. The great things God doth for his people are, not, are got in communion with him. Quote, the Christian, when he shows most zeal against sin and hath greatest victory over it, even then he must renounce all confident glorifying in this that he's able to overcome. The excellency of gospel holiness consists in self-denial. They who climb lofty mountains find it safest the higher they ascend, the more to bow and stoop with their bodies. And so does the Spirit of Christ teach the saints as they get higher in their victories over corruption to bow lowest and self-denial before God. Quote, A false heart yields, yields when sin comes with a bribe in its hand. None but Christ, and such as know the truth as it is in Jesus, can scorn the devil's offer 
Omnia hake dabo. All these things I will give you. The hypocrite, let him be got pinnacle high in his profession of faith. Meaning he's, you know, he knows a bunch. He's professing all this stuff. He, he's very knowledgeable in the faith. Will yet make haste down to his prey, meaning his sin, if it lies fair before him. One that carries not his reward of heaven in his bosom, that counts it not portion enough to have God and enjoy him, may be bought and sold by any huckster to betray his soul, God and all. The hypocrite, when he seems most devout, waits but for a better market, and then he will play the merchant with his profession. Quote, Tell some of adding faith to faith, one degree of grace to another, and you shall find they have more mind to join house to house and lay field to field. Their souls are athirst, ever gaping for more. But of what? Not of Christ or heaven. It is earth. Earth they never think they have enough of till death comes and stops their mouths with a shovel full, digged out of their own grave. What a tormenting life must they needs have, who are always crying for more weight and yet cannot press their covetous desires to death. Oh, sirs, the only way, if men would believe it, to quench this thirst to the creature were to enkindle another after Christ in heaven. Get but a large heart, vehemently thirsting after these, and the other will die also, as the fervish thirst doth when nature comes to her temper. Hopefully this gives you just a small sense of the vivid application of Gurnall's writing. Again, I wish I could just fill it with so many better ones, but these were just literally flipping around at random, letting my eyes light upon the page, seeing something I highlighted and typing in. Controversy. Many, if not most, of the Puritan divines refused to conform to the, to the 1662 Act of Uniformity. They believed it to be against Scripture and against conscience. Yet William Gurnall among a few others, decided to stay in their pulpits, even if it meant conforming to the requirements of the act. While many of his brethren were deprived of living in land, preaching in barns, private homes, and even from their own prison cells, Gurnall remained as rector of Lavenham until his death. Why did William Gurnall choose to do this? With his obvious Puritan doctrine and practice, why did he conform to the Church of England, who would impose these things that were against his own beliefs? And was William Gurnall wrong for doing this? We do not have an answer from Gurnall himself as to why he conformed, and so we can only conjecture. But we do know that he did suffer for it. After the great ejection of 1622, an entire book was written against him. And this is a long title, as they were back then, and a very, very toxic title. Quote, the name, of the, title, the name of the book was this, Covenanter renounce, Covenant Renouncers Desperate Apostates, opened in two letters, written by a Christian friend to Mr. William Gurnall of Lavenham, which may indefinitely serve as an admonition to all such Presbyterian ministers or others who have forced their conscience not only to leap over, but to renounce their solemn covenant obligation to endeavor a, reform, a reformation according to God's word, and the extirpation of all prelactical superstitions, and contrary thereunto conform to, these, to those superstitious vanities against which they had so solemnly sworn. Basically, this guy is an apostate. This guy has completely compromised on the gospel. This guy has embraced the Church of Rome through submitting to this act. So the whole book was about. Two whole letters on it. It goes without saying, I would hope, 
that Gernel's choice to conform was not popular among his Presbyterian brethren. Many have speculated as to why he stayed, even proposing that it was out of mere pragmatic self-preservation. Remember, Gernel had a wife. He had ten children. He was sickly and had a decent living at Levenham. Naturally, people assumed he traded fidelity to the truth to preserve his family. So was it? So what was it about the act of uniformity that the Puritans so despised? The act required all ministers to accept the new edition of the Book of Common Prayer in its entirety. Within the new liturgies required by the book would be the requirement of certain ceremonial vestments, the sign of the cross being given at baptism, the form of prayers, which in themselves had no doctrinal error, becoming a required part of liturgy, and a few other additions, such as the use of an image of the cross within the church. It was not so much the substance of the additions that the Puritans took issue with, as much as their imposition upon them. In fact, Charles II was really concerned that the, the Puritans would agree to what was in the Book of Common Prayer because it was so kind of mild. He was really afraid that they would all just be like, whatever, yeah, we can deal with this. So why did Gurnall find no issue with conforming to these impositions? Did Gurnall do anything inconsistent with his character as a minister of Christ? Was there anything abstractly wrong in his conformity? I personally do not think so. If we remember his great love for his congregation, it would make perfect sense that, while not the decision of most of his Puritan brethren, he chose to stay among his people even if that meant a few inconveniences being introduced in his ministry. While we know that the act of uniformity was an unjust, unwise, and unliving imposition upon the Puritans, we cannot say that no good man could ever have in good faith submitted to its requirements. I personally can understand why many holy and faithful ministers would have done as William Gurnall did. Ryle commented that, quote, We cannot have everything to our own mind in this world below. That the way of patience is better than the way of secession. That there is nothing abstractly wrong in forms of prayer. That it is better to put up with some things we do not like in a church than to throw away opportunities of usefulness therein. That it was better to accept the prayer book with all of its blemishes and have liberty to preach the gospel than to refuse the prayer book and be silenced altogether. That so long as they were allowed to preach sound doctrine, they ought not to refuse the opportunity, but to preach and stand by their flocks. I do not think he was wrong. It is better to have the gospel preached with bishops and prayer books than not to have any preaching at all. End quote. That was Ryle. I think there's much we can learn from Gurnall here, if this was indeed his reasoning. There are often times we are placed by God's providence into situations, relationships, churches, jobs, etc., where we can do much good but which are not precisely how we wish they were. We should weigh such providences faithfully and thoughtfully. Is there more evil or good that can, be, that can come from me being in this situation? It may not be exactly how I want it to be, and almost never is, right? But am I to be useful to God and man in spite of this, in this situation? Is it just that there are aspects about this that I personally don't like or find difficult? And so I want to make my reasons for leaving and abandoning it have something to do with religious conscience and holding up some righteous cause when in reality I simply do not think all of my supposed wants are being met? These are good questions to ask ourselves and ones that Gurnall may have asked himself. 
Was it better that he abandoned his congregation to potentially be fed by dilettantes and wolves? Or for him to put up with a few liturgical aspects he didn't agree with and still be permitted to preach the whole counsel of God to his beloved people? Being myself a pastor of a congregation, I certainly know what my answer to this would be. There's probably many things that are very surprising that I would put up with to remain with you. Death. After 1662, we know literally nothing about William Gurnall until his death on October 12, 1679, at the age of 63, after serving as pastor to his people for 35 years. He must have known he was dying, for he wrote his will on October 11th, the night before he died. The opening words of his will are worth quoting. Quote, I, William Gurnall of Lavenham, in the country of Suffolk, clerk, weak of body, but thanks be to God, of sound mind and memory, resigning up my soul in the first place into the hands of God, my Lord, Redeemer, and Savior, and yielding my body to the earth to be buried at the discretion of my wife. He left all he had in her hands that she might be able to care for herself and their few young children. Now, I titled this lecture, Unus Amores Extinguit Alium. And this is my favorite Latin saying. In fact, it's on my business card. It means this, one love extinguishes another. I learned it from William Gurnall himself. While explaining that Christians must not only wrestle against sin, but hate it, he goes on to show that we will never have victory over sin until we learn to hate it. Quote, others wrestle with sin, but they do not hate it. And therefore, they are favorable to it and seek not the life of sin as their deadly enemy. These wrestle in jest and not in earnest. The wounds they give sin one day are healed by the next. Let men resolve never so strongly against sin, yet it will creep again into their favor till the love of sin be quenched in the heart. And this fire will never die of itself. The love of Christ must quench the love of sin. As Jerome saith excellently, unus amor extinguit alium, one love extinguishes another. End quote. This is why I've always loved Gurnall. He does not merely say we must wrestle against sin or that we must merely hate sin. Rather, he says we must extinguish the love for sin and kindle a flaming love for God. We exchange one love of sin for another of God. And this is the real key to godly and joyous living. In closing, William Gurnall was a man who walked with God who walked in the very shadow of the Almighty, who dwelt in heaven while on earth. As such, let us imitate him insofar as he imitates Christ. And this is one last quote from him. The heaven of heavens is to be where the Lord is. Surely then, that which the saint hath of God's presence here is enough to make the Christian's life joyous. O Christians, is it not sweet to walk with God to God? To walk with God here below, by his assisting, comforting presence, to God manifesting himself in all his glory above in heaven. Oh, all you that are for pleasant prospects in your walks and out of your windows, see here one of the one that the world cannot match, the prospect that a glorious, that a gracious soul hath, walking in the paths of the righteous. He may see God walking with him as a friend with his friend, and manifesting himself to him. Yea, he hath not only the sweetness of God's present company with him, but he hath the goodly prospect of heaven before him, whither God is leading him to. 
And in this way of holiness, it will certainly bring him at last. Thank you. You are dismissed.